are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Welcome back, everybody, uh, to our study of the Evergetinos. And uh, happy Easter to everybody as well. It's good to see you. And uh, we're picking up uh, with just the very end of Hypothesis 39 tonight and then starting Hypothesis 40. And if you remember, we'd been discussing uh, the relationship between the uh, disciple and his spiritual elder and how important that relationship is that it's rooted in love but also in a spirit of obedience uh, where once one has committed oneself to the guidance of another one would hold to that and uh, a couple of our a couple of the final stories tonight emphasize it again in a beautiful way the, the nature of that relationship and then we'll be moving on to look at uh, a common malady, I think not only in the religious life, but in life in general in our day, which is to seek to change externals uh, with the hope that that will change the reality of our lives as a whole. And uh, uh, more significantly, that will change what uh, is going on within us, the things that we struggle with. Uh, Inevitably, we take our passions with us wherever we go. And so changing one's external environment isn't necessarily going to help matters for us. In fact, it can make things more difficult for us. And so it's a great source of temptation, certainly for monastics, whether they are living in community or living uh, the the life of solitude, they can be tempted to uh, switch to the opposite and uh, with the hopes that it would bring them a greater measure of holiness even. And so sometimes find themselves leaving the monastic life altogether. And so it'll be an interesting topic for us because I I think we we find ourselves doing this and even having the freedom to do it in our day to change the the external circumstances of our day-to-day life. And sometimes when we're doing that so frequently that we never reach a level of stability in our life where we can develop uh, aspects of our personality, of our spiritual life uh, on a very deep level that we can find ourselves living uh, superficially uh, because we're constantly adjusting to new surroundings and not having to deal with the, the deeper aspects of what's going on with it within our minds and our hearts. And so tonight we're on page 330, letter E from the Gerontcon. The disciple of a great elder was once undergoing warfare with thoughts of fornication. Overcome by them, he returned to the world and got engaged. 
The elder was grieved and prayed to God, O Lord Jesus Christ, do not allow thy servant to be defiled. No sooner did the brother fall into bed with the woman than he gave up his spirit without suffering defilement. <laughs> uh, not a very edifying story, uh, I suppose, uh, but seen from the, the standpoint of one perhaps tempted away uh, from their vocation. Uh, I think this is what we're going to be looking at in depth in the, the coming hypothesis, that uh, sometimes we are drawn to a state in life that is actually going to then uh, present us with great temptations. And so it's not the idea, you know, sometimes the monastic life is not for people and uh, leaving it and getting married is perhaps the right path for them. Uh, but uh, uh, I think what we're being shown in these two hypotheses is that it's also the ground where we are often tempted uh, to turn away from the, the will of God. It doesn't have to be towards things that are evil or necessarily sinful. Uh, it can be the very good things in this life that uh, attract us, uh, but attract us away from something that God has called us to embrace or to endure or whatever it might be. The, the hardships of the spiritual life can always make the grass look greener uh, in other pastures. Number two. There was once an elder who lived in a cave in the Thebaid. He had a disciple of proven virtue. Every evening, the elder was in the habit of giving him beneficial advice. After offering him this advice, he would give him a blessing to go to sleep. One time, the elder was visited by some pious lay people who were familiar with his ascetic way of life and who had come to bring him some gifts. When they departed, the elder sat down again as usual to instruct his disciple. But while he was talking to him, the elder fell asleep. The disciple waited for him to wake up and to give him a blessing to leave. He sat for a long time without the elder waking up. And although his thoughts bothered him, the disciple did not leave. As many as seven times, his thoughts urged him to go, but he resisted them and did not depart. Well into the night, the elder awoke. When he saw his disciple still sitting there, he said to him, why have you not left yet? Because you did not give me a blessing to leave, replied the disciple. And why did you not wake me? The elder asked a second time. I did not dare to nudge you in case I should startle you, the disciple responded. They then arose and said the morning office, after the office, the elder gave his disciple a blessing to leave, and he sat by himself. He fell into a trance. He saw someone who showed him a glorious place in which there was a throne of exceeding splendor, and on the throne, seven shining crowns. The elder asked the man, showing them to him, who are these? Your disciples, he answered. Both this place and the throne of God has appointed to him the unknown man continued, on account of his obedience, he received the seven crowns last night. As soon as he recovered from the trance, the elder called his disciple and said to him, tell me what you were doing last night. Forgive me, elder, replied the disciple, I was not doing anything. The elder, thinking that it was out of humility that he was not answering, persisted yet again, I'm not giving you a blessing to leave, he said, unless you tell me what you were doing 
or what you were thinking last night. Since he was not aware of having done anything, the brother was perplexed and did not know what to say. So he told his father, Abba, I did not do anything. All I remember is how my thoughts pestered me seven times to leave without your blessing, but I did not leave. When the elder heard this, he understood the meaning of the vision, that every time the disciple resisted his thoughts and did not leave, he was crowned by God. He told his disciple nothing of what he had seen. However, he related it to some spiritual men for their benefit, so that we might know that God grants us shining crowns even for small labors, and also that we might learn at the same time that we should be diligent in seeking the blessings of our spiritual fathers and should not dare to do anything or be separated in any way from them without their blessing and instruction. So interesting little story. And a number of wonderful things come forward. You know, it's not the magnitude of the action. In fact, we see in this story, it's something very simple that the disciple uh, not only uh, respected his elder and did not want to wake him from his sleep, but was obedient to the point of not moving from the position until he received the typical blessing to, to leave. And, uh, and what's even uh, greater here is the, the humility that he does not see, can't recognize what it is that uh, was that the elder might be speaking about uh, that was so significant. Uh, and what certainly the elder then came to discover is the reason for his having received these crowns from God, that the simple act of obedience and that which is done in, uh, in humble love can have enormous value in the eyes of God. And uh, I think some, sometimes in our world, we often are focused upon what it is that we do or accomplish, uh, the weight or the significance of it in our own eyes or the eyes of the world around us. When uh, in reality, in the eyes of God, it is things like humility, love, gentleness, kindness uh, that uh, are of the greatest weight and that uh, then offer us the greatest crowns. Uh, and so it's not necessarily what we accomplish with the work of our hands within this world, but it's really what is going on within our minds and our hearts. It's what is built on the interior level uh, that has the, the greatest significance. And uh, I think in the spiritual life, this is important because we can become focused upon a kind of activism uh, in terms of what we are doing on a day-to-day -day, uh, level with, with our hands, what we are creating. And so often this can have more to do, I think, with our own perception of what is religious or virtuous or what has value. And, uh, and so we can begin to evaluate or estimate our own value in terms of uh, our performance of certain things, religious duties. And in this, there can be a kind of Phariseeism that can creep into one's spiritual life. And we can lose sight of the simplicity of the gospel and of the, the Beatitudes 
It's often what is seen as having little or no worth in the eyes of the world that Christ puts before us as having the greater value. And so here we see in the humble love and obedience of this disciple, something that offers him uh, what has eternal value. And uh, a good thing, I think, to keep in mind, because I think uh, not only do we have this tendency to fall into a kind of activism, but we have a tendency to complicate uh, the spiritual life and uh, to turn it into something that's complex. And and uh, in, in doing so, uh, I think we distance ourselves from that relationship with God. You know, to turn turn again things into external actions or behaviors uh, rather than the relationship with God uh, can bring about a subtle distortion over time in terms of what has, has value. Any comments on this little story? Okay. Letter F from St. Ephraim the Syrian. Honor your spiritual father with all your might and do not render inefficacious the counsels of him who begat you in the Lord. For in this way, the evil demons will never prevail over you. According to the scriptures, whosoever honoreth his father will take joy in his children. And when he maketh his prayer, he shall be heard. He that glorifieth his father shall have a long life and shall find grace at the end of his life. Honor thy father in word and deed that a blessing from him may come upon thee. Glory not in the dishonor of thy father, for thy father's dishonor is no glory unto thee. For the glory of a man is from the honor of his father. And so all quoting here from the, the book of Sirach. And certainly, I think when we read this, we would think typically of our biological fathers. Uh, but uh, Ephraim is recasting it for us uh, in terms of those who, who beget us in, in the faith, in the spiritual life, those who are responsible for uh, enlivening uh, our desire for God and our commitment to him, and those who show us the path to virtue. And so this, this bond, again, uh, we see the fathers, but in particular Ephraim, one of the greatest of them, emphasizing the, the relational aspect of this, that it's not, uh, again, a kind of slavish obedience that an individual is called to, but rather a love and a respect for the one that has opened up the, the way of faith in a greater measure for them. The one who's the origin, if you will, of their, their greater uh, commitment to God. If you live with a great elder, do not only recount his virtues, but also emulate his life, for this will benefit you. Show your affinity with him, not only by your words, but also by your deeds. And Chronicles talks about this as well, that you know we, we don't want to be telling everybody who our spiritual father is, as if uh, on, some level that uh, is going to give us uh, you know, greater value in the eyes of others. Uh, 
that because of his reputation. Uh, what we should be recognizing is uh, most of all his virtue and seeking as Ephraim says to emulate it, to imitate it, uh, that this is what has great value to us. And so love and respect them, but imitate them more, more importantly. And, you know, I think when we look to the saints as well, we often will talk about them and, often, and about their deeds, especially those deeds that we uh, think that are of extraordinary or of extraordinary nature or that bear witness to their sanctity. And, uh, but the, the saints are, similarly are to be honored uh, through imitation that we would seek to embrace something of the same spirit that guided and directed them in, in their spiritual life. And so whether it's the depth of their prayer, their ascetic life, uh, their, their generosity of spirit, their, their courage and suffering for the faith, these are all the things that we would want to embrace and focus upon. And ra rather than simply uh, recognizing their identity before others. We can become saint watchers and, you know, have them, you know, covering our walls, but unless we are seeking to imitate their lives, it's not going to have much of an impact on us. And if you remember, we mentioned recently one person saying that, you know, one of the greatest works to read uh, was the Evergatinos and that he wouldn't turn a page of it, or maybe it was Isaac, wouldn't turn a page until he had internalized what he read of the text. And in a similar way, you know, our gaze upon the saints or our spiritual father, uh, it's always going to be and should be their way of life that speaks to us in a more powerful way even than their words. And uh, we should be focused upon imitating them. And maybe we've lost sight of this a little bit. I think even in terms of when I've, you know, we've, I've often talked about seminary training that uh, I feel that we've lost this kind of mentor kind of relationship that I think is important. And I think that's across the board too, even you know, in some of the, like the uh, British schools where you would have a tutor, smaller classes and someone that you would meet with individually uh, to, to talk about what it is that you're studying, that there, there's something that's passed on there through that personal relationship that's very powerful. And uh, Cardinal Newman talks about personal influence a lot in, in the same way, uh, that it, it has this uh, powerful value uh, that personal, the personal influence that one can have upon another in terms of how they see the faith and how they live it. And uh, again, this is done by the, the witness of virtue or the witness of our prayer and even the witness of our silence, uh, the fathers tell us, that should be the most powerful thing. And when we turn, I think, the faith life into something that's overly academic and overly intellectual or professional, uh, then uh, it begins to lose something and something I think essential uh, in terms of passing on on the faith. Uh, what is it that we're really bearing witness to? And uh, professional religious 
you know, aren't going, it's not, it's not going to bear much fruit. You know, if it's simply words or packaging, there, there has to be something real there that is speaking to the deepest part of others' religiosity, or it's not going to bear fruit. Okay, anything from this particular hypothesis before we move on to the next? Okay. So hypothesis 40, uh, again, as I mentioned, it's the focus is on stability here and not making quick decisions about one's spiritual life. And the, you know, the writings of the fathers are replete with examples of those who make a decision to go into the depths of the desert or to embrace a life of solitude or to intensify their spiritual life in some way. Uh, but what the authors want us to be attentive to is that there also can be deceit in this. And they show us some of the greatest saints being very cautious, in fact, spending years before they make a decision to, to make a change in their external life, uh, if they make that change at all, that it's often instability that things can grow uh, uh, and put down deep roots uh, and, and the, in the spiritual life, certainly within, within our hearts. And uh, if we're uprooting ourselves and throwing ourselves into an environment that we think from our own judgment or out of our own desire is going to be fruitful, it's not necessarily going to bear fruit for us uh, or bring us the grace that we imagine that it would, perhaps staying exactly where we are, struggling through the things that we are dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis is what's going to bear the greatest fruit for us. And so great caution, great spiritual counsel, humility is needed here. So letter A from Palladius. On Mount Nitria, there was a monk called Nathaniel. He had such patience that he never violated the role which he had set for himself after the initial mockery that he endured from a demon. Long ago, the following had been befallen him. Sitting in his cell, he felt lethargic and could not accomplish any spiritual work. He departed from that place and built another cell closer to a village. He had spent three or four months there when one night he heard a din outside his cell caused by someone holding an oxhide drum of a kind used by public executioners. The individual who was banging on the drum had the appearance of a ragged soldier. In vexation, the blessed Nathaniel said to him, who are you carrying on like this in my lodging? I am the one who drove you from your first cell, he replied. Now I have come to chase you away from this one too. As soon as the blessed man realized that the devil had made a fool of him, he returned to his first cell. He spent 37 entire years inside that first cell without stepping across the threshold to go out. During that time, he warred against the demon, who in order to force him to leave his cell, showed him such things as one could not recount. The blessed Nathaniel resisted him valiantly until the end, and he reposed in that cell. And so, you know, we, we started off here with, you know, a very clear 
story and image of it and the nature of that temptation that uh, because of what he was struggling in his initial environment, he makes the decision to, to move to another place, only there, only to find there that after a few months that he's being faced with something, a disturbance far greater. And, uh, and then when he realizes uh, that it's uh, the demon and the same demon who tells him that he's the one who's driven him out of his first cell, he goes back to the first one uh, in order then to do battle, in fact, for 37 years. And the nature is of the affliction, we, we don't know, and, but it must have been a terrible one if it's uh, too awful for it to be recounted here after all the things that we've heard. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, he endures almost for four decades uh, because it's in this first place that the greater virtue could be found. And not, not because it gave him a sense of peace or that there was a sense of the fruitfulness of his life. Uh, in fact, when one is being attacked on this level and in this on, you know, uh, with this measure, one can begin to doubt the value of the choice of that life altogether. And to think that one has made a mistake or that there's no value to the ascetic life or of staying put within uh, certainly within oneself as a solitary. And uh, so, so many things can begin to work on the mind and the heart. And as we've mentioned before, they, they saw that the, the solitaries were the ones who experienced the greatest danger in this regard, that if they would fall, there would, there would not be anyone there to pick them up or to help them to discern the, the nature of the attack. And, uh, and so, we see something of Nathaniel's holiness that once he becomes aware of it, he's able to, as it were, backtrack and uh, place himself back on the path that God had desired for him. And so already here in the first story, a, a little foundation is being laid for us here. You know, not to have these great expectations uh, that by simply changing externals, we're going to make things better for ourselves spiritually. And it doesn't say, you know, as if you look at the header in the book, it says, should not lightly go out of or withdraw from the monastery in which he's promised. And so throughout the course of history, as I mentioned, we see monks being drawn on to different ways of life or moving from one to another starting out in the synobium and then moving to the anchoritic life. Uh, but not to do this lightly is the, the point that is being put forward here because that uh, delusion can come into play here. Number two, thoughts of vainglory once troubled St. Mark Carries the Great of Alexandria, trying to drive him out of his cell and suggesting that he go to Rome supposedly by providence, in order to benefit the afflicted there. For through him, the grace of the Lord worked exceptionally well against evil spirits. When these thoughts bothered him intensely, and he did not listen to them, they assailed him all the more vehemently and prompted him to leave. The saint then fell on the threshold of his cell, and stretching out his feet out towards the exit, said to the demons of vainglory, 
Hold me and drag me, you demons, if you can. For with my feet, I'm going nowhere. If you can carry me where you say I will go, in any case, I swear I, that I shall remain stretched out like this until the evening, unless you move me, and I will not listen to you. He remained unmoved in that position until well into the night. The following night, these thoughts disturbed him with greater force. So the saint stood up and taking a basket that held two measures of modia, which I think is a kind of grain, uh, he filled it with sand, put it on his shoulder and walked around in the desert. On the road, he encountered Theo, Theosibus, the governor of Antioch, who said to him, what are you carrying there, Abba? Let me take up your burden so that you will not get tired. I'm molesting him who molests me, replied the saint, for when I am relaxed, he tempts me with the thought of going away. And after walking around like this for some time, he returned to his cell, having exhausted his body. So, uh, quite a sight, I'm sure, if anybody had sort of wit witnessed him lying on the floor of his cell with his feet stretched out at the threshold, would have thought that he was uh, nuts. But uh, he, you know, is engaged in the heat of the battle. And uh, it's become so vicious that he begins to feel a tangible pull to leave the cell. And so physically, then he takes measures to, you know, humble himself, but also to entrench himself uh, within the cell. So first of all, you know, blocking uh, his way out the door, lying on his back, but stretching out his feet so as to prevent his being removed physically. And then when he's attacked in an even greater measure, taking upon himself physical asceticism uh, in order to weary the body, to humble the body. And, uh, and certainly, you know, is living as an anchorite. Uh, this would be the, the weapon that would have to be used to humble oneself in every possible way before God uh, in order to be able then to be strengthened by his grace, feeling himself so embattled by this demon. Uh, and, you know, I, I think we can see that the measure of this battle is would be comparable, I think, for us in the West to somebody like John Vianney who the, the, experienced the attacks of the evil one, even in physical kinds of fashions, when unable to tempt him uh, through the passions, then uh, experiencing uh, a kind of visceral attack. And, uh, and so we begin to see that here, you know, that St. Marcarius says, okay, if you're, if, if you're going to try to move me, then I'm physically going to hold myself down, weary, either wearing myself through ascetic practice or by physically prostrating myself on the ground and preventing myself physically from leaving. And in this spiritual life, I mean, it might sound like an amusing story to us. And we might wonder, well, what could this possibly mean for, for us living in the world? But I think every single day, it could, can have value for us, that our minds can shift so quickly to, to move to, 
to do something else, to shift our focus onto something else, rather than the task at hand, uh, the, or the thing that has greater value for us. And we may physically have to remove ourselves from that which is the source of temptation, or remove the source ourselves, uh, in, in order to prevent ourselves from being drawn in a particular direction. And so if it's the computer pulling one away from one's prayer life or from one's work, then one might have to shut it off, unplug it, lock it up, or, or clean the house, sweep out a room, vacuum, clean the bathroom, those kinds of, of things in order that one might not be drawn into the, the temptations that come to us through thought. And, uh, and so we find somebody like Philip Neary uh, wanting to keep his disciples from falling into a kind of idleness. So constantly having them sweep out rooms and things such as that, so that they could be doing this manual labor while engaging in prayer, uh, but not become victim then uh, to the kinds of temptation that often arise out of idleness. And so we, we might find ourselves having to physically engage in the spiritual life in such a way to involving the whole self when we are engaged in such a spiritual battle. Uh, and often we live too much in our head and uh, in terms of that relationship with God. And I think this is why we see within the church, you know, various postures you know, both in, in liturgy, uh, but in personal prayer, making prostrations, uh, fastings, sleeping on the ground, uh, you know, all these different kinds of things to keep one focused, humbled, uh, in, again, in mind and body, and not doing these things to punish oneself but to, to heighten one's awareness of what is going on internally, where if we're allowing our minds simply, simply to drift or allowing ourselves to daydream, we can easily be pu pulled into delusions. And we've probably all had it in often in, in uh, uh, innocent ways or seemingly innocent ways where we will find ourselves uh, fall into a kind of daydream, a waking dream, and that all of a sudden comes together. And it's sort of a fantasy of, you know, that our mind forms about uh, certain paths that we could take or engagement with others, things that we would say, say to others. And we can, you know, sort of wake up and realize, oh my gosh, you know, I just spent the last 15 minutes in this kind of daydream. And uh, it's been interesting. I, I've been reading this book by Pope Shenouda III. He uh, is a, a Coptic, the Cop, he was the Coptic patriarch, very holy man, saint, I would say. And there's a book that has recently been republished by him called The Life of Repentance and Purity. One of the, I think, is going to be a classic and one of the deepest writings uh, and but accessible, I think, to the modern mind. Uh, he's lived in this last century, and uh, 
and was uh, leader of the church for four decades. And, you know, the Coptics, the Copts suffer greatly uh, in living out their Christian life. But he talks about uh, purity of heart and repentance and how the two are connected and how to measure one's purity of heart, that our repentance has to move to the hatred of sin. And, uh, and that there is often backsliding because we are inattentive uh, to what's going on in and around us with the depth that we need. He says, not warring is not the same as victory that there might be many different reasons where we are not engaged in spiritual conflict. The evil one might back off for one reason or another in order to take us unawares when we let down our guard. Perhaps even God is allowing us to rest after having engaged in a spiritual battle for a period of time, but we are to be ever vigilant in our desire for virtue, our hatred for sin, it should lead us to this constant kind of repentance that bears a greater and greater purity of heart. And so purity of heart is not even the same as sanctity, he says. There can be holiness of life, but purity of heart is where there is no desire for evil or sin at all within, within the human heart. And this is what, this is the goal of the spiritual life. And so when I read stories like this, that uh, we just went through, we, we see this constant battling and warfare going on. And in some ways, the, the saints often will say, that's the safer position. Whenever they find themselves not being attacked is when they get worried because they're wondering, okay, what's coming? Or what might they not be aware of? What, 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 what might they not be seeing about themselves, what's going on in their own heart? Is there a kind of pride there that is blinding them? Uh, something they're not being attentive to. And uh, so when we, we look at St. Marcarius the Great here, we see, see the lengths that he's willing to go to simply to protect the virtue and, uh, and how deep the warfare becomes for him, and we see this in the previous story as well, uh, how, how vicious it can become. And I think what, uh, what, one of the things that Pope Shenouda says is that we have to reevaluate how we look at the spiritual life, that many Christians have a faulty vision of spirituality altogether. And, that, and this is the reason often that we can't uh, give an account for why there is a constant backsliding in the spiritual life, a return over and over to those same sins. And part of the reason that he, he says is that we aren't engaging in the warfare, and, or we falsely assume that where there isn't a warring, direct warring going on, that victory has been won. And it might have been one in one little area, but there are all these other areas of the spiritual life. And especially when we are seeking and have a cl clarity about the fact that we're seeking purity of heart to love 
virtue above all things and to hate sin perfectly that we have no desire for. If that's our understanding about the spiritual life, then we are not, we're, we're not going to fall into that position of self-satisfaction or allow ourselves to relax as, as it were in, in the spiritual battle. And so these stories on the surface might seem a uh, little far-fetched or you know, something that doesn't touch our life, but I think it touches our life every single day. And one of the things he talks about, just one, one little thing, is this kind of daydreaming that I mentioned, the wasting of time, the distractions that we allow ourselves to be pulled into that might seem innocent to us on the surface is, is something that's creating this habit of mind that, that allows our attention to drift away from God or to drift away from the vigilance that we, we need in the spiritual life, or from what God has given us to do, our obedience, whatever commitment that he's called us to embrace in our life, whether it's in marriage or taking care of children, the work of the day, you know, that we allow our, our minds to drift away from it. The, the self, it's funny how the smallest things can be the uh, a great source of strife for us like the cell phone i think i'm surprised and i'm surprised like the, the like apple and others have put uh this uh function on it where you can see how much time you spend on your phone because everyone who does that when they look at how much time they're horrified by it because the, throughout the course of the day we don't realize just how frequently we check emails, check for texts, check for notifications about posts that we've made, uh, and how, how often we allow our, our minds to drift to trivialities, uh, Pope Shenouda talks about. And, uh, and so reading the Fathers, and Shenouda's deeply immersed, I mean, he uh, started out in the monasteries of Wadi Natrun, you know, where a lot of the saints that we are reading about, you know, before he was elected to his position, he lived in the monasteries in, in Egypt and was a monk himself. And so everything that he's writing about is rooted in their thought, uh, but he puts it forward in a way that is extraordinary. So I couldn't recommend the book highly enough for you. In fact, I, I'm contemplating doing it as a group in and of itself. It's, that's how strongly I feel about it, that after we finish some, someone like Climacus, maybe to go to it because it is so extraordinary. I'm doing a retreat and I ask you to please pray for me this weekend for the deacons of the Archeparchy. And I'm just doing one little section of, of this book uh, as the retreat for them. Uh, the book's, uh, Carol and I paper, the, the book is called The Life of Purity, uh, The Life of Repentance and Purity of Heart, Pope Shenouda III. Very easy to find on Amazon. So, okay. And number three, the last little part of this section. 
Once when I was feeling very sluggish, I visited Abba Mark and said to him, Abba Mark, what should I do? For I'm afflicted by thoughts that tell me you are doing no good, leave this place. The most holy Mark replied to me, tell your thoughts. I'm guarding the walls for the sake of Christ. <laughs> uh, what a great answer. Uh, because it's it's not giving in to this sense of uh, what we are doing is having enough value. Because I think there's anything in our life where, that can be drawn into question uh, in terms of its value. And so what a great response to the, the thoughts or the demons. Um, I'm guarding the walls for Christ. You know, that to do that for Christ is something that can bring us crowns, as we've heard in the last, last hypothesis. And so be confident in that, that what we do for love of Christ is, is of, uh, of great value. And uh, because it's so easy, the simplicity of that response I love because it's so easy to really fall into despondency about our life as a whole. And if you're religious to think I've wasted my life or that the work that I have done bears no fruit or the work that I've put in is not seen by anyone or that the work that I've done has fallen apart and has not endured. And so we can think, uh, you know, why, why bother? Why not take a different path? And it, we can very easily sink into a kind of despondency. And people can think about that in regards to their marriages, their work, you know, and begin to doubt it. And, you know, again, thinking about not that a person shouldn't change the externals, especially in regards to work or something like that, but we, we can be tempted the moment when something seems less than ideal to us or that it doesn't seem to be bearing the fruit or offering us a kind of satisfaction that we, we want to get away from it. And so when those thoughts come to us, say, well, I might not have seemed to do anything of much value today, but at least I guarded the walls for Christ. So any thoughts about this first little section? Okay. From the life of St. Euthymius. In the Lavra of St. Euthymius, two of the brothers, Maron and Clematius, unable to endure the hard life and regimen of the Lavra, agreed together to leave secretly by night. They communicated this plan to each other and thought it through. But he who reveals hidden things to those who are dedicated to him, saying through Isaiah, Thou shalt no more have the sun for a light by day, nor shall the rising of the moon lighten thy night, but the Lord shall be thine everlasting light. Disclose this to the servant St. Euthemius in the following way. One day when the wondrous Euthemius was by himself, it was revealed to him that the evil one was placing reins over Maron and Clematius, whom he saw as though they were before him and that he was dragging them into a most fearful snare. He immediately perceived the plot and summoned the brothers Maron and Clematius. He exhorted, admonished, encouraged, and instructed them 
conversing with them at great length about patience, saying that vigilance and caution are always needed. He then gave them the examples of Adam and Job. The former broke a commandment in paradise, whereas the latter acquired every kind of virtue on his dung heap. He also told them that the monk must not accept thoughts suggested by the evil one, whether of grief, hatred, boredom, or withdrawal to another place. We should not accept these thoughts even for a moment, the saint went on, but should reject them and banish them with all our strength, lest the evil one trip us up unawares through some trick of his and cast us into a fall worthy of tears. So, Euthemius, having purity of heart, also has this gift of discernment, and with such clarity that he's able to see the demons working upon Kalmatius and Maron, and uh, dragging them, as, as it were, by force, and convincing them that this was the, the better path for them. And so he tries and makes use of every means possible to, to draw them away from the path that they had intended bringing forward examples, again, of Adam and Job in, in particular. And, uh, and yet they, they do not heed this, as we will see, at least in it, not initially. If someone thinks that he cannot practice virtue here, let him not suppose that if he goes elsewhere, he will succeed more easily in his purpose. For the accomplishment of good does not depend on the nature of the place, but on our intention. For monastics, what is contrary to this is wrong and can lessen the intensity of their efforts and make them unfruitful in virtue, just as a plant can never produce fruit when it is con continually transplanted. In order to provide sure confirmation of his words, the saint related to them the lives of some Egyptian elders. The last line, I think, was the important thought there, that that which is transplanted over and over again is, becomes less and less likely to bear fruit. Uh, that when you're uprooting something, uh, then you are weakening it. And the more that you uproot it, the weaker it becomes and the less likely it is to bear fruit. And so stability uh, of, of life becomes, uh, you know, certainly a focal point for, for the monks that only with great reason and with the agreement of their elders uh, would they make such a move. Along this line, Sean writes, I have friends who have considered converting to orthodoxy. Can you speak to pursuing holiness in our church and not leaving this context? Yes, you know, I think that is the, the great temptation that, you know, certainly uh, we've given every reason for people to at times, uh, to leave the church. And there can be numerous things that one can point to, to call into question, not just theological reasons, but liturgy, uh, leadership, and how it's perceived, you know, whether it's overly harsh or overly lenient, uh, uh, you know. Uh, and so it becomes fertile ground, I think, for this kind of delusion that we hear described uh, in, in these readings. And if you look, I think, at much of Catholic 
and in Christian, in general, Christian discussion uh, that is public and on social media, that it is often along these lines of dispute, of calling into question one way or another, these theological battles or liturgical battles or discussion, you know, you know these uh, controversies about liturgy uh, or scandal, uh, you know, putting it forward again and again. And, um, you know, I, there are individuals on, uh, and I understand it, there are individuals on social media who were victims. And, uh, and so it becomes sort of the focal point uh, of their, their spiritual life, understandably, but also of drawing attention to it especially since no attention was given it throughout the, you know, decades and, you know, uh, uh, those who were uh, predators were passed on or was ignored. And so uh, it's put out there over and over again. And so, but while understanding that and sympathizing with it, I think it also then becomes this constant source of temptation because the church is being presented over and over again as uh, through this lens of perversion. And the priesthood is broken down through it. And uh, I think, but the faith as a whole is broken down. And so I've noticed over the course of these, over these years, and, uh, and even, you know, as we pass through COVID and the church's response or lack of response, however one uh, once to view it, uh, became something that was scrutinized and argued about. And it shifts people's focus off of what is most essential, which is this focus upon Christ, uh, focus upon if the kingdom of God dwells within us, if we're temples of the Holy Spirit, this is where our focus should be. If we're seeking to embrace the truth and live the truth, it's going to be in and through Christ. And the demons can use things that are, are real subject matters that, uh, that have great weight. Issues of theology, again, issues of liturgy, our understanding of the church, to draw people down a certain path and to lead them out of the faith. And, uh, or, or to diminish certain aspects of the faith as uh, of having any weight or importance. Uh, uh, Eric writes, Pope Francis said Sunday that evangelization doesn't get done by keyboard warriors, and that he's right. You know, evangelization begins with conversion, our personal conversion. And, uh, and uh, you know, this is where I think we, we drop the ball. And so, and when we do that, we open the door, I think, for people to be tempted away from the faith. Uh, especially when I think orthodoxy or certain segments of orthodoxy do, do seem to be so rooted in the, the spiritual tradition. There are certain elements within orthodoxy that were this kind of strictness, this asceticism, uh, this uh, kind of unchanging mentality of, that, uh, of stability through time. Uh, takes on uh, this aura of, you know, uh, 
of something that is is very powerful, and yet you know people will make that move into it uh, quickly for those reasons and find uh, that all isn't as it seems. And um, you know I don't, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I think the question is a valid one that the same kind of battle can be exist in terms of leaving the communion of the church. And, uh, and it can be very fierce and is fierce for people on a day-to-day -day basis. And, and it doesn't even have to be about many of the things that I mentioned. It, it can be even just a person getting fatigued in the spiritual life and wanting to move away from where this battle seems to constantly be taking place to move to more peaceful pastures. And so it's not even moving to something like orthodoxy, it could be moving to becoming like an, you know, an Anglican or, you know, taking this kind of middle way uh, and that seems to be more peaceful. And uh, whereas the church seems to be you know, so afflicted at times. And so the same, what is being said here about the spiritual life, I think applies then with this movement uh, towards orthodoxy. Now we hold a lot in common and I certainly have great love uh, for the orthodox, Pope Shenouda being one of them. And, uh, and, and many contemporary orthodox writers, uh, but uh, you know there are aspects of Catholicism that uh, that are you know part of the substance and the means of our sanctification that we can be tempted to move away from or treat as insignificant, and we we would not want to do that lightly. I think a person has to follow their conscience, and that I would respect. And but they have to be every bit as discerning as what is being described in these writings. Okay. Let's see. Uh, John writes. I think our Lord told us that in these times, charity would grow cold, which is exactly what is happening with all these internal disputes within the church. Exactly. I think the the way that we talk to each other reveals a lot. And exactly what you described, charity growing cold, when we lose sight of the dignity of the other uh, and the dignity of the other in Christ, uh, we break down the body of Christ. And, uh, and uh, there's you know, such a hold upon the minds and the hearts of so many Christians these days uh, that the unity is being broken down, not simply between Orthodox and the Catholics, but within the church itself. Uh, and this has to be something that's very saddening to God, I'm sure. Okay, so we'll pick up with our, our story here of Euthymius trying to draw these two men back from the path that they set themselves upon. He told the story of a brother who lived in a cenobium in Egypt and who was constantly getting angry and infuriated and upset, whose mouth was filled with bitterness and anger. One day, feeling sorry about this, the thought came to him 
that because of this anger and because he so easily became upset, he was his own enemy, such that if he should ever happen to do anything good, he would run the risk of destroying this as well. So he persuaded himself to leave the synobium and leave, lead a life of solitude because the desert, as he imagined, could greatly help him to acquire tranquility and calm. He reckoned that since there would be nobody under his authority against whom he would be irate and angry, the grievous fire of anger so abruptly kindled in him would gradually be quenched and he would in the future become mild-mannered and filled with tranquility and peace. <laughs> I've had those thoughts many times in, in the course of my life. Uh, after entertaining these thoughts, he forthwith departed from the synobium to live in solitude and stillness. Once filling a cup with water to meet some need, he tried to put it on the ground, when by the activity of the devil, the cup overturned which happened not once, but two or three times. The brother became angry and overcome by a fit of wrath, threw the cup on the ground and smashed it, which provoked the enemy to unrestrained laughter. So uh, we hear this story come up a number of times within the writings of the fathers of monks discovering, and this is where they are, the, the great and the first depth psychologists, that they could find themselves becoming angry at inanimate objects, whether it's a cup like this or a piece of wood that they trip on or gets in their way, that they could fall into something like wrath, like this, even to the point of smashing the cup. And uh, there's a great story, in fact, about St. Anthony, where he's tempted in a similar way, where he had to walk great distance to gather water for himself and then walk miles back carrying these, you know, like pottery kinds of jars. And as he gets close to the monastery, they, they smash and the water spills out in the ground. And so he has to walk back like seven different times, you know, to re refill them. And but never gets angry in the process that he's aware of the, the temptation there or the movements of the mind and the heart that could lead him to give way to a passion, the passion of anger. So the interesting little part emerges though here in the story, Clematius found this story amusing and began to laugh heartily. But godly Euthemius observing him carefully said to him, perhaps brother, you too have been incited to this by some evil demon. And this is why you are laughing so shamelessly and recklessly, whereas you should be weeping and sighing in order to benefit from the consolation that comes from God. Or perhaps there is no truth in him who will, who will judge us in the future when he characterizes as blessed those who mourn now in this world, because, as he says, they will be comforted. But as miserable those who laugh now in the, this world and do not look after themselves. Furthermore, when a monk speaks without moderation or is aroused by anything whatever, he shows that he's utterly ignorant, just as he does when he speaks without being told. For the fathers call outspokenness the mother of all the passions in general. So losing one's calmness or this kind of steadiness of mind 
that we see in Comatius reveals something to Euthemius about him, that, uh, that he does not take seriously the, the nature of the warfare and the subtlety of it. And, you know, and I have to admit too, that there's something when you first hear this story that makes you want to laugh about it, that he becomes angry at the, uh, you know, the cup, cup overturning. But one who has this kind of stability of mind, calmness, internal calmness, is not going to be driven in one way or another because to find humor in this uh, is in, in some sense not to take it seriously in terms of the weight of it in our own spiritual lives that we can so easily be drawn into a passion or that it can become inflamed so easily within us. And this is what Euthemius want, wants to warn him and he uses it uh, uh, to draw them, again, off of this path that they had taken for themselves. With these words, St. Euthymius chided Clematius and retired into his inner cell. Clematius was immediately overtaken by divine retribution. After falling face forward to the ground, he was overcome by terror and shivered all over. So, he's allowed to experience something of the consequence of this uh, lack of internal stability that is reflected not only in the desire to, to leave uh, the monastery, but also his lack of seriousness about the nature of, of temptation. And so uh, to draw him out of that, he's allowed to experience uh, the full measure of it. So he falls down in a kind of terror and begins to tremble, shivering all, all over. As soon as uh, Domitianos saw Clematius stretched out in this distressing condition, marveling on one hand at how harmoniously gentleness and strictness were mingled in the character of St. Euthemius, and feeling pain on the other hand at the suffering that Brother Clematius was undergoing, he gathered some of the fathers of the Synovium to entreat the saint to intercede for Clematius along with them and brought Maron before Saint Euthemius. The saint, being by nature very merciful and not wishing to show disrespect for their entreaty, went to the with the fathers to Clematius, who was still stretched out. He freed him from his terror with the sign of the cross and caused the shivering to cease. In this way, Clematius was completely cured of his affliction. After this miraculous healing, the saint said to Clematius, be sure not to disdain the teachings and the precepts of the fathers, but become all eyes as we hear of the cherubim, so that you may examine yourself from every angle as one who is forever passing through the midst of many snares. After counseling and instructing Comatius with these words and strengthening the others with the example of Comatius, he gave the latter his blessing to go and to live peacefully by himself in his cell. So, Euthemius, you know, it's an interesting how he's described here, first of all, this mingling within him of, of this gentleness, but being able to be strict when needing to be so. 
uh, is able then with the sign of the cross to, to free Clemasius from it. Uh, but gives then that warning, which I, I think we, we should, would want to underline here about not disdaining uh, the teachings and the precepts of the fathers. Uh, when we hear these stories uh, or these teachings like Comatius, not to take them lightly, but to allow ourselves to, to linger in them and to be taught by them. And, uh, and the interesting image here of becoming all eyes, uh, that in the spiritual life, that we have to become like the cherubim uh, because of the unrelenting nature of the, 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 the devil's attack upon us, that he will use any means uh, to draw us off of, of the path that God has set us upon. And not just whether or not we, you know, remain within a monastery, but how we engage in the spiritual battle as a whole, as a whole from moment to moment, you know, are we of, of this clarity about what the nature of our life in this world is. And that there is not peace in this world, except that what lies within Christ and what we receive from his hand. And that we should expect constant warfare and be prepared for that in the spiritual life. And, uh, you know, it's a hard thing. And I think, but this is why uh, Saint Pope Shenouda, who I mentioned earlier, says what he does, that we have to call into question the spirituality of many in our age in the sense of losing sight of the distinctions between uh, of purity of heart and sanctity and what repentance really is. And unless we see the need for a kind of constancy or the vigilance that's described here, then we're off the mark that we aren't realizing that the evil one is always looking for ways to, uh, to drive us off of the path to sanctity and, uh, and that we should not see a momentary lapse in this war, uh, warfare as a sign of holiness. Because until we leave this world, we, we have to be ever vigilant. We have to become like the cherubim, all eyes. Eric writes, one does not proclaim the gospel standing still locked in an office at one's desk or at one's computer arguing like keyboard warriors and replacing the creativity of proclamation with copy and paste ideas taken from here and there. The gospel is proclaimed by moving, by walking, by going. This is Pope Francis on April 12th, which is right. You know, it's, <clears throat> we, we lose ourselves and in trivialities. And I'm not saying that these aspects of the faith are trivial, but we make them trivial in the way that we treat them. And we get lost in them to the point that they then become a distraction from God and a distraction from loving others. And so, you know, Pope Francis is right on the mark here that uh, it's interesting, he even has it down, the creativity of proclamation with copy and paste ideas, you know, that we can take what is written 
by saints of previous ages about various subjects and argue back and forth with them, but having no knowledge, no experiential knowledge of what they are talking about. And so then our theology becomes, in essence, demonic theology. We are arguing with, the, with each other, but not being guided by the spirit of truth or the spirit of love, uh, but we're being guided by the father of lies, even as we discuss religion. So stay away from internet discussions on any of those subjects. It's hard, you know, not to answer uh, comments, especially when they're pointed or when they're insulting. And, uh, but we don't need to. There's no law that we have to respond to those things. Any final comments before we wrap it up for the evening? Okay. So as we move into this, uh, greater and greater stories that I think that will drive this home for us, and practically in terms of our day-to-day -day spiritual life too, uh, where we have to cultivate a kind of stability within the heart, within the mind and the heart. So when we close there, as always with our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.